0: Welcome to episode 151 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is the writer Jessica Ritchie. Jessica, welcome back to the pod. Uh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Our subject for today is the latest film in the MCU, The Marvels, <laughs> starring Brie Larson, Teona Paris, and Canada's own Iman Vellani. By now, you've heard that this movie cost Disney $270 million, and its opening weekend take of $46.1 million, was the worst in the history of the MCU in a year that seemed to spell the end of the superhero movie as the dominant film genre. We're going to talk about the Marvels, but we're also going to unfairly compare the Marvels to a good movie about female superheroes, 1993's Hong Kong classic, The Heroic Trio, starring Michelle Yeoh, Anita Mui, and Maggie Chung, a favorite of mine and actually a tonic after watching the, the marvels.
1: Well, I think with this one it'll be me more self-policing myself not to get sent to horny jail for talking about Maggie Chung I the know. like I'm I know. already like I'm already <laughs> mentally holding the, the ruler over my own knuckles of like you cannot be this thirsty for Maggie Chung in public.
0: <laughs> I put up I I put up a tweet that said Maggie Chung appreciation post with four really hot photos yeah. of her and then somebody messaged me with the horny jail dog. <laughs> You know, like they they didn't respond to me, they just sent it to me privately. (laughs) That's funny. Captain Marvel, we need you to save the world. There she is. You're forgetting something? I'm revengeful.
1: Your powers only make me stronger.
0: That's not good news.
1: We have to stop her. This is the start of a new beginning. Yeah!
0: The Marvels rated PG thirteen in theaters November tenth. Uh, I think we should take a victory lap here, Jessica. We've been predicting this for a while. It has yeah. come true. We have come back to tell everybody we told you so.
1: Yeah, yeah. Q Elton John's "Measure of a Man" over the Rocky <laughs> Five credits. Is like <laughs> black and white photos of the dismal to- totals for every comic book film this year flashes you come full circle now you're home for black and white footage of Zachary Levi weeping on his Instagram <laughs> and, and so on. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, I would be a lot more gracious in, in victory if it had not been so increasingly exhausting to point out the, the lack of returns on these movies, both like culturally and everything else is that like, as the more they dominated the market, the worse they got because the less they had to try.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is what I've been whining about for a long time is like this kind of stuff has monopolized cinema going and uh, you know, theaters are so dependent on this sort of hit and run business of these movies. Sometimes they have legs and uh, last a long time, but after end game,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: that. Felt like an exit ramp for a lot of the audience, and it's manifested itself now in the diminishing returns of these movies. And Disney hasn't learned very much about changing up the game. They're they're resolutely continuing to to dole out this stuff, and for a number of reasons, which we'll get into in the show, the thrill is gone. I think for this stuff.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, like the thing that struck me, I saw the Marvels an opening Friday night with with a pretty full house, but. The crowd watched most of it in
0: just bemused, polite silence. Did they like anything about it? Was there any moment where they got excited?
1: There is is a moment that we'll get to a little later in the show. The the mid-scene credit uh, cameo, the cameo cookie. And again, the fact that, and we'll get into why, that this was the thing that got a little bit of a rise out of them is not a good thing for, honestly, either of those
0: properties. (laughs) I went to see it uh on a Monday afternoon. There were about 20 of us there. It was kind of a non-event.
1: Mm-hmm. We
0: just all sat there and watched it. The audience liked the kittens, but they <laughs> didn't really care about the the big cameo at the end and there was no real moment where everybody liked the movie. I I it 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 did feel like um okay, we're watching this film. Maybe some denial. Maybe we all walked out of the Theater, the like we had all watched American Sniper just quietly shuffling out of the theater. <laughs> like nobody was excited about what was coming next, <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah, that, that, that again, that what struck me because, like, I've seen before I, I, I burnt out with Endgame, with an Endgame, again, was my exit ramp, and we'll talk about this more is that, like, I had seen Marvel movies with crowds packed theaters that were absolutely into this and, like, applauding at the applause breaks and cheering and hooting and hollering and the the, the rest of it. So, like, it it really feels like the, well, you know, it's been, like, 15 years since Iron Man, something like that. And it's, like, every genre burns out. And, And more to the point, you know, you have hit the oversaturation problem the, the, of a already waning genre. So yeah, of course these are going to just start going off like wet firecrackers one mm-hmm. after the other
0: but as we talked about on our episode about Black Adam and its relationship to the Roadshow musical of the 1960s and the decline of mm-hmm. what was once a dominant genre these things take a long time to get made and now what's happening is they're rolling out off the assembly line to complete indifference
1: yeah and like i think it, this is where we get we get into there's an industry, industry term in comic books called like the jumping off point where like a storyline presents a natural exit ramp for you to stop following it. Mm -hmm. In game was that for the Marvel cinematic universe. I'm certain Disney did not want nor intend for that to be how it was. But like, even if you weren't like me and you didn't sour on these movies in game was a series finale in game was, you know, all right, so what ha- what have you been telling since Iron Man? It's like, well, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the life and times of Tony Stark. It's like, okay, so how does this story end? Uh, Tony Stark gives his life so that the universe may live. Like, oh, that's good. Uh, I'll be going now. And that like, you can you can see the, the increasing growing panic of the, no, you're supposed to stay on this treadmill forever. Like, no, no, we're done. It's like, you told a story. It's like... Tony Stark goes from a callow, selfish, you know, young younger man to sort of this this hero that would be willing to lay down his life to save everyone. And you're like, that's 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 a satisfying story. I don't need anymore. No, I don't care about Doctor Strange. And like, it has been interesting watching the directionlessness of the Marvel Cinematic Universe since
0: they also think that this kind of stuff is transmutable, like you loved everything else we've given you. Here's some more stuff that you're going to love. Reaching its hypothesis with Eternals, where it's like, here's some of your new favorite characters, Kingo, Druig, <laughs> Sprite. And it's like, I don't, Sprite to me is a soft drink. I don't, Chief you, know. McLeod. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know who any of these people are and and they presume you do. Yeah. They're inside a bubble now. They're making these movies for comic book nerds, but. I don't think there are actually all that many of them to warrant the amount of money you're spending on these things.
1: Oh, no. And like, the, and the Eternals is 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 there always such a good counterexample because you could say, well, like, you know, 2014, 15, well, nobody knew who Guardians of the Galaxy were, but it's like, but they sold it as a zany space adventure. There was a clear hook of, like, in fact, leaning into the obscurity of these characters of, like, l- look at these weirdos that Marvel has kicking around. Watch them have a fun adventure in space versus like Eternals was totally high on your own supply of that you know we we just poached the woman who won best director at the Academy Awards the year previous to have people stand solemnly on a beach in you know unflattering leather t- tunics and look out into the distance you
0: know mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, let's talk for a minute or two about Martin Scorsese because he's been living rent-free in the Uh heads of the Marvel studio and all the Marvel fans for the last three years. And we have the poetic victory this year of uh, Endgame being the biggest movie of 2019. And Scorsese has a little movie that's probably not going to get much of a theatrical release called The Irishman, which costs tons of money, just like Endgame costs tons of money. One of them was a big, massive hit, and a lot of people think that that connotes uh, its worthiness as culture just because right. it was so popular and And Scorsese, in an interview, just said, oh, this stuff's just theme park rides to me. It's not cinema." That comment has been rattling around in their heads. Ever since,
1: yeah, and and again, like Joe Russo of the Russo brothers has been particularly insufferable about this because he did like a TikTok recently of like uh, apparently one of Martin Scorsese's little dogs is named Oscar and probably not for like Academy Award. So like Joe Russo is like, oh, I get it, Oscar, like the Academy Award, and like he's like, come here, box office, and for his little dog, and it's sort of like just incredibly petty and small. And it's also opening, you know, himself to the criticism of the, well, that kind of needs an asterisk. It's that like, when you are assistant manager to Kevin Feig, oh yeah, your, your movies absolutely do make a fortune. But when you are not stage managing someone else's, you know, uh, IP, it's like, you know, nobody is knocking down your door to do criterions of like 21 Bridges and Cherry. It's like, all I'm going to say about Joe Russo is that if I was Mickey Mouse's best towel boy, I would not take pot shots at the person who directed The Last Temptation of Christ, and that's all.
0: <laughs> yeah, like I would presume somebody like Martin Scorsese would have a dog named Oscar who was named after Oscar Hammerstein or something yeah, exactly, like that. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. But, but yeah. they're like, oh, he's named a dog Oscar because he's so mad that he hasn't won any Oscars. Uh, Scorsese's not going to win very many Oscars this year either, I, you know, like – I think that Killers of the Flower Moon is going to win a couple of awards, but I think this is Oppenheimer's year. But I also yeah. think that Scorsese's probably not sore about it either.
1: No, I mean it's like he's he's continuing to do really interesting work and like really looking back at his own career and the larger World of movies he came from and influenced, and it's like you know doing these like magisterial late works about like American violence and capitalism, and honestly how the two are inseparable. It's like you there is a there is a through line from like the violence he sometimes gets criticized for to the violence that you know deliberately, very deliberately, using this phrase made America great.
0: So poetically, this year the new Martin Scorsese movie *Killers of the Flower Moon*, which cost two hundred million dollars. Doing just fine, you know, like it was made for Apple TV and it got a theatrical through Paramount. It got a worldwide release. It's making a certain amount of money. It's not the kind of movie that makes tons of money because it has a very difficult subject and it also is three and a half hours long. It's doing just fine. Whereas the Marvels, which cost basically one third more than Flower Moon cost, bombed And it bombed hard and it is not going to make back its production budget.
1: Yeah. And, and more to the point that like, you know, things like Killers of the Flower Moon oftentimes are like lost leaders for studios because they want the prestige and the awards buzz. And like, and again, we're back to how like Mar- Marvel Cinematic Universe and the superhero juggernaut in total kind of devoured and deformed a system where it was possible for all different kinds of films to be made to the studios just want to put all their eggs in one basket of $250 million movies that make a billion dollars every time, no matter how obviously unsustainable that was, leaving everything so
0: much more culturally impoverished. One reason why the Marvels cost $270 million was because it had four different release date changes.
1: hmm To the point that in July, it was very funny driving through the drive-thru late at night for a large Coke, seeing the the stickers up at the McDonald's for the uh, Marvel's Happy Meal tie-in when it was supposed to come out in July. (laughs)
0: Let me walk you through the process of finally getting the Marvels. So Kevin Feige first announced what was called Captain Marvel 2 in December of 2020. So about a year after the original movie made tons of money. Mm -hmm. It had a planned release date of July 8th, 2022. It got moved to November 11th, 2022, which wound up being around the time that they put Wakanda Forever out. And then they moved the Marvels, but then they switched the release date with Ant-Man 3 because it was further along in post-production. So Ant-Man 3 came out in February and bombed. And the Marvels was punted to the summer and then they moved it further to November 10th. So this film was shot about a year and a half ago, and then last year they did an additional one month of reshoots. I think what's happened here is that Disney finally said, we can't keep on moving the date. This movie is toast. Let's just put it out in November and assume the crash position.
1: Yeah, well like I like I was talking to someone about this film the other day and you know they were asking me like so what is what is the marvels even about and I mean like I described the events in the film but like I told them like well what the marvels is really about is like this is what happens when you've booked too many theaters too far in advance and you can't just actually put this thing on the shelf like it needs to be so art right, here it is mm-hmm. <laughs> you know
0: I decided for this podcast to not watch any of the prerequisite homework. Right. Because I wanted to see, can you watch this movie walking in off the street, which is how most movies should be as far as I'm concerned? Mm -hmm. Captain Marvel, the movie that came out in 2019, tell me a little bit about this character because I don't know who Captain Marvel is.
1: Yeah, and again, it's like, n- neither does the 2019 Captain Marvel, nor the Marvels, which is part of the problem. But like, okay, uh, Brie Larson plays Carol Danvers. Carol Danvers is a test pilot for the Air Force. Sometime in the early 1990s, she was on a test flight and disappeared. And she was flying an experimental aircraft that when she crashed on an alien world, she somehow fused with... The the engine, which I think might run on an Infinity Stone, some bullshit like that. But the point being is that, you know, she now is incredibly powerful. She, however, is an amnesiac because the aliens, she, think this is so stupid, she crash landed with like kind of both took her memories and kept her from fully recovering from her injuries and basically used her as one of their soldiers. So the plot such as it is of Captain Marvel is that she somehow gets back to earth in the 1990s, recovers some of her memories, breaks with the aliens she crash landed with, and then goes back into space because they've written themselves into a corner is that, Captain Marvel is so powerful that you can't really actually use this character because any fight with anybody, even Xanos will be over in 10 seconds. Cause she, she basically has got like abilities. She's like the closest thing to like Superman level mm-hmm. or full. So that's Captain Marvel, and then she very briefly appears towards the end of in uh, game where they kept making excuses of like, well, why isn't Captain Marvel here? It's like, well she you know she's patrolling space somewhere because when she shows up, she almost immediately ends the fight by being able to like punch spaceships in half and like, in both of her appearances, but particularly Captain Marvel, where she had more screen screen time. I know Brie Larson has been capable of better work, but it's honestly some of her worst. And like in her, her her defense, the part is so thinly written and it is so content-paced. Let's just click-clack all these plot points we need to set up and get through it that there's there's never any time to build a character or for, for her to even really have an incentive to try. But it's fatal on the marvels because, you know, Alman Vellani is really trying and you know has the tv kid energy cranked to 10 so it's almost funny of like you know oh you're my hero it's so great to be here and like you know brie larson just grimly faced marching through it Uh uh-huh yeah and again not in like that terse bruiser with a heart of gold way but like someone who is obviously never doing any of these movies again yeah
0: Yeah. Uh, so you know that's the backstory on Captain Marvel. But yeah. Captain Marvel was the movie where you, Jessica, started wondering why am I watching these movies?
1: Yes, yes, because it's like well again, oh um, yeah. You know, I had a good time with a lot of the early Marvel movies. Cause, you know, I like I like superhero stories. I am part of the problem, <laughs> I will admit. But the the one of the the most useful uh online herb observations i ever stumbled across somebody on social media said this and it is so the skeleton key to like the last good decade plus of entertainment of once disney figured out it could get people to defend its billion dollar products with social justice language it was over and mm. like captain marvel was the epitome of that to me because captain marvel and black panther both were supposed to come out several years before they did. But what happened is Disney got the rights back to Spider-Man in, in tandem with Sony and made homecoming instead. So, you know, th- these further bumped up the schedule Afterthoughts of the, all right, we've made enough movies with white guys named Chris, let's make one, you know, with a person of color and a lady person is, you know, that already. And then for captain Marvel itself, it literally plays like a full-length Air Force recruitment ad in, in mm. ways that I find appalling. Because here's the thing. I don't have to have movies match my politics or pat me on the head for having the politics. Like I love The Hunt for Red October. And you want to talk about something that's very conservative and cozy with the military-industrial complex. But The Hunt for Red October isn't selling itself as a girl power in uh, empowerment fantasy. And also The Hunt for Red October is a much better made movie because Captain Marvel was also the first time I started thinking, where's the money going? I mean, this, this cost over a million dollars and it looks so cheap because like empty warehouses are either empty warehouses or we put up a little bit of track lighting and, oh, and now the, the interior of a spaceship and like, and not in like a fun, low budget way. It's sort of like, you know, th- there's a difference between like something like Mario Bava or something even like, you know, Roger Corman with a lot of like, you know, verve and energy and ideas nibbling around the edges versus like, oh, you just didn't care.
0: It seems so much about money in terms of success that that Mr. Show joke more money equals better than. Right. You know, like uh, what do you mean the movie's bad? It made a billion dollars. Like that's yeah. a that's a big defense that people offer a lot. Like you're, you know, I feel that I've helped to make these movies as popular as they are because I'm always buying the movies. I always see them five or six times in theaters. So I feel kind of a sense of ownership to this. But more than anything, I feel like that my taste is uh, an elevated taste, you know, and that's why Scorsese just going meh about these movies hurt their feelings so much. Like they they would, and then they would say, "Well, Scorsese, when's the last time his any of his movies made money?" And you know, so they're back around to money again. So, so when I watch these things, I think about the expenditure of money on two levels: the making of the movie and the revenues the film generates. It seems at this point that they just expect the audience to turn out every time, and they don't really worry about whether or not it's good because the audience just loves to see these characters again and stuff yeah. like that. So they're kind of resting on on uh, past achievements, I would say. And you know,
1: well, again, it's sort of like going back to what you know Scorsese said to me: it is so much less snobby to be like people deserve good movies than. Disney's increasingly obvious position of the, oh, you hogs will eat anything we put in the trough. Like, to me, Mm -hmm. that's contempt. That's what Mm -hmm. contempt actually looks like of like, we will throw in these half finished effects and, like, you know, actors visibly not on set with each other at the same time. And, like, and it it doesn't matter because, you know, as long as we jangle the keys in just the right way, you'll keep forking money over
0: to us. Well, the Marvels was. Probably shot at least a year ago. It Mm -hmm. was made at a time where I think Disney was feeling more optimistic about things like Disney Plus, and and the lesson that they learned from the success of Endgame is: what if we just always had new Marvel content for y'all? Yeah. So they started Disney Plus. They put all the movies on there, and then they rolled out all these series. And they they're you know in the olden days the phases were all cinematic, and they even call it a cinematic universe. But now it's movies and television. But now what it is is it's like going to a theater to watch television.
1: Yeah. And like and not even good television yeah. because like I'm currently watching like a lot of older shows like, you know, Columbo and like Mish Possible and like even like late season Mission Impossible, I'm on the last season of the original Mission Impossible, where like, you know, the budget is clearly down to the bare essentials, and like, they're not spending any more money on it than they have to, still does not look as cheap as a Marvel movie, because Mm -hmm. the the sense of like, well, you know, if, if the lighting is scaled back, and the sets look a little stagey, it's like, well, you know, Paramount was probably only spending, like, I, I, I don't know, in 70s do- dollars, a couple thousand dollars per episode versus <laughs> like, this looks so strained and cheap. Like, the Marvels look strained and cheap, but it somehow costs 270 million. Okay.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, this is all due to the insane workloads that um, mm-hmm. people have, and the above the line costs are pretty staggering. I read that 14 million of the budget on the Marvels was on star salaries. Bree Larson was paid five million dollars to reprise her role. Tayona Paris received one million dollars. Iman Vellani, on the other hand, received five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And I think that is cruel because she's the co-lead of the film. She's all over the marketing. This is supposed to be these three superheroes. And Disney talks so much about equity and uh, fairness and stuff. I feel that the three leads should have gotten comparable amounts of money. Brie Larson made 10 times the money that Ms. Marvel made.
1: Yeah and and also the fact that honestly as much as I don't think she that Larson was good in Captain Marvel 5 million for a sequel to a movie that made a billion dollars is frankly also kind of obscene because by the end of it uh I'm sh- you know Downey Jr and Chris Evans were getting paid generous amounts to sleepwalk through these too so and like yeah like to, and for me it's like so yeah Larson should have gotten more Paris should have gotten more and Volani at the very least should have gotten like a cool million for your, okay, you're in the movies now. Big break. And particularly maybe even gotten a bonus when it became obvious, she was giving the only performance you could conceivably stitch a film around in all the reshoots.
0: Yeah. Well, on uh, Iron Man 3, Downey made something like $30 million. If mm-hmm. the rumors are true and they're going to be trying to get him to come back for a re- rethink of the Avengers, because Marvel's in panic mode right now, mm-hmm. I bet you that he'll he'll ask for and receive sixty or seventy million dollars.
1: Yeah. Well, again, like we'll, we'll get to this when we, when we talk specifically the 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 mid credits uh, cameo. I have a sneaking suspicion that actor probably got more for the day's voice work than Villani did.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, because it's a CGI performance. It's not yeah. the actor. No. And also, if they had fourteen million dollars on star salaries, Samuel L. Jackson is the guy who made the most amount of money on this movie. He received seven million dollars.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like, I don't necessarily begrudge him that either, because, like, you know, but at the same, but at the same time, we're back to like, it's like, why I find oh, you you don't like Captain Marvel. Well, obviously, you hate films, you know, led by strong women. It's like, well, no, it's like, I don't like full length Air Force recruitment ads that pretend to be like, you know, girl power, you know, empowerment fantasies. And and secondly, if you were actually genuinely serious about diversity and equity, then that includes pay equity, too. And you're not.
0: Well, you know, and the cynical thing about Captain Marvel, you might have problems with the military industrial complex, but the aliens are doing even more terrible things
1: yeah like i i i heard um uh, like one of the defenses of captain Marvel being that like you know actually it's like this stealthily criticizing you know the military is like you know it's like you know she learns the fake space military she was part of was bad unlike her friends in the very real and noble air Force i mean like the the air Force the blue angel Thunderbirds don't do flyovers for the premiere like they did for Captain Marvel for a film that criticizes the military
0: any criticism of the military that is in any of these movies was approved by the U.S. Department of Defense. Exactly. And what's so funny about the Marvels is that it pretty much omits any references yes. to Carol Danvers' time in the U.S. Air Force. There's a little hint of it in a flashback sequence, but she's not an Air Force pilot in this film.
1: Yeah, I, th- that jumped out at me as something really interesting. That like did like they either get pushback back or is it like a sign? of the Marvel Cinematic Universe's waning influence as a propaganda arm that, like, you know, the Pentagon is like, eh, you're yesterday's news, so we're, we're not going to be, like, you know, helping you out anymore.
0: One thing that bothers me when I go looking around for people who also don't like MCU movies very much is that so many of them are... Like spurned lovers, you know. Like if Marvel just gave them back their Uber mention, they'd shut up. They have so much of their personalities wound up in these movies that uh, when they start to not work out financially, it, they sort of seem to take it as an indictment on their own way of life or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's so profoundly silly. The the and on, and honestly, it goes both ways. That the wrapping up of your sense of self in the marvel cinematic universe either being like a ride or die for it of like the, the disingenuousness of disney acting like it invented diversity with black panther when it kept bumping black panther up the schedule so it could make spider-man instead and then like the, what you're talking about of like you know the, the the you know the supposed go go bro crowd of like that's not why movies like the marvels fail the movies like the fail because they're just not good because you know Captain Marvel wasn't good because Endgame was a series finale because at least in the marketing wise it was really also funny watching Disney's last minute reversal on this but until they reversed there was very much playing up the better hope you watch WandaVision, Miss Marvel and Secret Invasion because otherwise you're going to be lost and like even if that turned out not to be true you can't put that genie back in the bottle.
0: Because Marvel has always been Pitching it as, you know, you've got to watch X and Y to best appreciate Z. So the Marvels is a sequel to a bunch of things all at once, not in any great depth, but just enough to be incoherent if you're not familiar with any of this stuff. I have to tell you, the first thing that we can say about the Marvels is I was lost at sea trying to figure out who Monica Rambeau was or Brie Larson's in outer space. I don't know why she's there. I don't know what that headset is that she's wearing that uh, gives her the flashback scene. When Captain Marvel is flying around destroying the planet of the bad guy in this movie uh, and acting like a sort of genocidal maniac. I didn't know whether or not that's a reference to the first movie. I didn't know if that was an action scene from the first movie that we're seeing from a different perspective, like Zack Snyder would do. I, it was just came out of nowhere. It's like, why is she acting this way?
1: Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's like, I have only seen Captain Marvel and I haven't seen Captain Marvel since it was in theaters, but like, I know enough of what is supposed to be going on that I wasn't quite as lost as you, but it was, it wasn't so much feeling lost is that like the jittery shaved down to the bone nature of the Marvel's cut that finally ended theaters. It's like, it's like all of everything that would have given this like muscle and heart is gone. So it's just sort of like, you, know, you, you okay maybe may, maybe you can follow it but like it's like well what's the point of any of this because it's it's sort of like you know poor uh you know the actress playing Monica Rambeau has to say at a couple different points that like I got my powers when I walked through a witch's hex you know for those of you that didn't see WandaVision yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and yeah
0: yeah but i mean this is takes me to the next thing that i have to say about what marvel has to do to turn things around is that you can't expect everybody to have already seen everything to see the next thing. The only thing that made money out of all the prerequisites was Captain Marvel the movie which made a billion dollars and change. But nobody's watching. I guess people liked WandaVision, but nobody's watching Ms. Marvel. Nobody watched Secret Invasion. Uh, nobody's watching Loki from the sounds of it. Like yeah, this is and- a this audience is now confined to being Disney Plus subscribers. There was a time where the general population knew more about what marvel was doing because it was available all over the place and you could watch jessica jones on netflix
1: yeah i like and for that matter like even the avengers in 2012 if you had not seen any of the previous films leading into the avengers i'd say that you could probably find your footing fairly easily and like that is absolutely not true for the marvels
0: I didn't know what their powers were either. Like what is Monica Rambeau's power? She can I don't it has to do with light and energy and uh Miss Miss Marble can make objects out of light and they like I know what Superman's power is, very and I know what the Flash's power is. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what photon is.
1: Yeah, I mean and frankly neither does the Marvel's are Captain Marvel for that matter because like well cuz like they were they were always really nebulous on what Captain Marvel's abilities were which is a problem in this and that like because the, 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 all the the scenes clearly that probably explained Mrs. Marvel's and uh, Captain Rambeau's powers got cut. That we're left with this sort of vague. It's like, oh, the the reason you're all connected and swapping places is that you know you all have light powers. I'm like, oh yeah, that 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 explains it. Sure, why? <laughs> it's, you know.
0: Yeah, so it's like I don't know why she like we see Monica Rambeau in outer space and she's holding her hand out and all this l- light is coming off of it or something and she's yeah. supposedly working on the space station. And it's like I don't know who this person is. Mm-hmm. She's one of the main characters of the movie. I don't know which, and and in a way, the movie seems to also be defying. Uh, And giving the audience any idea of who she is because some of the running gags in the movie is her coming up with a code name and she doesn't want a code name. (laughs) And to me, I was like, well, you don't need a code name since this is the last time we're ever going to see you. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's again, it's like all of their arcs that you can kind of see the, bare contours of what was supposed to be of like okay Monica Rambeau is about she'll like reconnect with with Captain Marvel and you know she'll accept her su- superhero abilities and then like you know Mrs Marvel's arc is that like you know she'll finally see that like your hero has like you know feet of clay like we all do and like will like you know learn to make you know hard choices and like and, and again it's like the 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 ghost of that like if you if you cl- cock your ear to toward you know the north on lonely night, You can hear the whistling plot of what the Marvel's supposed to be about.
0: (laughs) Let us talk a little bit about what we liked about this movie because I think you and I had similar experiences. I think I went in like I was a condemned man on my way Mm -hmm. to the electric chair. Yeah, like I, you know, we 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 made this pact together, you and I, that we were going to watch this movie, and uh, you went and saw it immediately. I. Stalled as long as I could, and then finally <laughs> saw it yesterday. Um, uh, but I thought I've seen worse Marvel movies. That was one thing I was thinking while I was watching it.
1: Well, uh, yeah, well Captain Marvel, honestly, because that's <laughs> that's kind of like where I kind of broke up with the Marvel yeah. universe. So it's like, it honestly, it, it's weird. It's like on on some level, like it has to be you know worse than Captain Marvel. And I'm, I'm like, well, I guess technically, but like it's so short that it it's not really worth getting angry at, and like. There are patches here and there where you see, like, the really fun Silver Age adventure DaCosta probably wanted to make that Kevin Feige kept shutting down.
0: Yeah. The musical Planet, when, yes. I, when I heard it was coming, I was like, oh God, oh God. And I could tell that it had been cut down. Mm-hmm. And I bet in, an, in a more confident Marvel era, when all their movies were 149 minutes long, this was probably a reel of the film, right? There was probably a whole reel on the musical planet. The other thing that I laughed about the musical planet was because we did a show on Black Adam and Paint Your Wagon. And yes. now Marvel is literally throwing in these weird musical numbers yes. in the movies that nobody wants to watch.
1: Yes. I, I thought that too. I'm like, oh my God, it's it's literally the Great Waltz in the- yeah
0: it's like you know uh, the director saying I was really inspired by Thoroughly Modern Millie and uh, Song of Norway
1: yes (laughs) kids today can't get enough the old curiosity shop
0: sadly Lee Marvin didn't live on the musical planet that would have been good he could have married all three of the Marvels in some weird uh, polygamous <laughs> well, I mean, that relationship. He,
1: that, that's not any weirder than like what's actually going on. Of like, and and again, like this feels like. Well, obviously, the scene got cut of. You know, Captain Marvel having the kind of wacky space adventures where, like, she ha- she has a marriage of convenience with a husband that, that she otherwise doesn't see or ever have to really think about. And so, it, it sort of like comes out of like, wait, what? Because it, again, it follows scenes of the, and here's. the the villain laying waste to another planet time for a musical number
0: again. yeah well this was something that bugged me uh, about the movie was that the musical planet was cute and all that jazz mm-hmm. and i liked it more than i expected to i thought it would be uh bad music but it wasn't actually all that bad mm-hmm. and uh even though the marvel Heroic Trio's costumes were pretty lame. I thought that the costumes on the planet were pretty good. And yeah. it addressed one of my main complaints about the Marvels, which is these movies don't have any color in them. I right. thought it, it sort of had a little Jacques Demy vibe, like the Young Girls of Rochefort. Yes. You yeah, know, and and I and so good for Nia Decosta If this was one of the few parts of the movie where she was able to put her personality in it, I appreciate it.
1: Well, it feels like that because what makes it tonally clash is that like, oh, this is kind of fun and new and cute and like, oh, wow, you actually made an effort to have like visually interesting costumes instead of workout gear. I'm like, yeah, Kevin Feige had nothing to do with this, let me tell you.
0: And it was on a level that was comparable to what Walt Disney is able to deliver, you know, like it was on that level. Like I thought it's not like brilliant, but, you know, I was actually thinking I was going to have to hide under my chair for this part and it was fine.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The other uh, member of the cast that I think was pretty good in this movie was Iman Vellani. As the sort of comic relief, like the sort of Rob Schneider in Judge Dredd kind of role, like she had to be like, you know, weirded out by everything. And she feels totally off because she's a TV star, not a movie star. She's 21. You know, she's not a a great actress, but she's the only member of the cast that looks like she really wants to be there.
1: Yeah, like, I get, like the way I described it, it's like she, she behaves like the only cast member not being kept on set at gunpoint. Yeah. And uh, which in turn sometimes creates its own problems because it's like, you know, Velani is really trying and like, you know, selling it to the cheap seats and like, gosh, we're having an adventure. Or, this is so cool. Or no, no, they're going to die. What do we do? And like, you know, gr- Brie Larson looks like she's like ten seconds away from just marching off set and like punching her agent in the mouth for getting her involved in these in the first place.
0: I like Brie Larson. I've I've enjoyed her in a couple of movies. She was so funny in Twenty One Jump Street. I was like, who's this? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Uh, And I've been sort of uh, I was trying to pay attention to her career for a while, but uh, something sort of happened in the last few years. She went for a big payday. Yeah. And I don't begrudge her the money. But uh, she's sort of phoning it in. Uh, I haven't seen Captain Marvel, but in this movie, uh, she's not really trying all that hard, and there's no real characterization either. She's trying a little bit harder in Captain Marvel, but like, not by much. And again,
1: like, th- there's no real characterization to Captain Marvel either. And eventually she flounders on that there too, of like, well, so, so what's your deal? It's like, you're, you're a stoic badass who doesn't really remember your past. So you kind of walk around looking confused at everything. That, that's it. <laughs> you know?
0: And then there's also Tiana Paris, who uh, I remember as one of the secretaries, Dawn from Mad Men. Mm-hmm. And she she has the least to work with. She is uh, Monica Rambeau. She's the daughter of another character from a different movie who was friends with Carol Danvers. And she actually uh, isn't with us at the end. But that was the thing that I found surprising is that this is a sequel to Captain Marvel, but Tiona Paris's last scene in the movie is the farewell scene that the main character doesn't really get to have. And then she's got a bonus scene at the end of the film. But Brie Larson just leaves the movie. There's a scene where she brings Ms. Marvel to her new house in Louisiana and they're sitting together talking. And then we just cut to uh, the last scene involving Ms. Marvel. So Brie Larson just leaves. like
1: Yeah, it's, it, it again, It's it really feels like whatever exit she's taking from Marvel was clearly I guess some thing of an acrimonious one that you don't get like you know the well you know it's a big universe out there and I'm you know needed and like you know her like friend, friendly clasping Mrs. Marvel on the shoulder like keep looking up at the stars kid and you know she takes mm-hmm. off in a beam of light or something like that it's sort of like that yeah she's she we sent her to a farm upstate she can
0: <laughs> run around and chase dogs she's happy <laughs> but it would have been so much simpler for this movie if Cap Captain Marvel had gone into the space time rift and healed it. And then she had a last scene with, uh, with Kelsey Grammer as the beast. Yeah. From, you know, like for you. why not just have her in it? I guess maybe they couldn't convince her to come back for more reshoots, that but it was just surprised. so, but it was so anticlimactic. It was like, uh, well, mm-hmm. the character that we haven't really developed, we're going to give her a big farewell and an extra scene at the end.
1: Yeah, and I, again, I, I really feel bad for Paris because she is so completely at sea because like all of the things have been cut. Clearly, her material has been cut the most to the the point where like she honestly has no real reason to be in this. It's like okay, if you're if you're doing a a stripped down version of this, then Mrs. Marvel following Captain Marvel around like a puppy dog, thrilled out of her mind to be having her first big adventure in space. That's enough. Mm-hmm. You, you don't need all the Captain Rambo stuff, but so it's still there. This v- vestigial ghost of a much longer and honestly much worse movie, but that it leaves Paris with literally nothing to do except you know get sucked through a rift in space and time. So we can acknowledge that Disney now owns the Fox X Men characters too. <laughs> I know. It, 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 again, it's it's Marvel's pro- the the MCU's problems in a nutshell of like, okay, Monica Rambo gets sucked through a rift in space in time and gets jettisoned into the Fox (laughs) X-Men universe. So she wakes up in a hospital. But the thing is a version of her mom is still alive in this universe. So it starts to be this really wrenching scene of you look just like my mom, but you don't know who I am. And I never existed in this universe. So like we are talking to each other to then the beast walks in and by, you know, the, the beast, I mean like some atrocious looking digital fur technology with Kelsey Grammer's voice coming out of it. And then, Paris does this ah oh, shit, here we go again expression, and it's like completely kills dead both the the, the attempted pathos and honestly the comedy potential of the scene. It's just it's, mm-hmm. it's it's the one of the reasons I burnt out on the movies is they had an increasing snark insurance policy of don't worry, we think this is dumb too
0: this is really stupid, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, and it costs $270 million.
1: Yeah. And again, and again, to me, that's much more grotesque, much more culturally and morally grotesque than, you know, Scorsese po- pointing out that these are theme park rides. Cause the, th- the thing is, these aren't increasingly even good theme park rides. Like you can have a satisfying experience on a roller coaster and a log flume that will be much more satisfying. I think than trying to sit through the eternals.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, also let's talk briefly about the villain, the very weak villain
1: oh yeah it's uh, it's uh, Ashton, the partner the real life partner of Tom Hiddleston uh, is playing Darbin a Cree who has it in for Captain Marvel because in the in, in the events of Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel destroying the supercomputer that runs the Cree civilization led the Cree home homeworld to a civil war and a resource depletion. So now Darvin is using a MacGuffin bracelet to go steal other planets resources. And it's like, it's, it's like, it's fine as villain plans go. And Ashton isn't like, you know, objectionable in the role. It's that like, none of this matters. And Ashton is so obviously being shot separate somewhere in an empty warehouse in Atlanta and being <laughs> patched in as needed to stitch this movie together.
0: Yeah. But what's really funny is that uh to just circle back a little bit when this movie was being marketed the trailers kept on changing at the beginning it was like oh it's the three wacky Marvel's, they're finally meeting for the first time and they keep switching places and winding up in each other's realities kind of like a trailer but then I guess they got the numbers in on how badly this movie was selling and they immediately did an about face and started the last wave of trailers with about 30 seconds of scenes from the first Captain Marvel movie and the Avengers Endgame uh, climax (laughs) and they also tried to set it up like the bad guy in this movie is Thanos's protégé. And yeah, that's false no. advertising. There's yeah. no relationship to Endgame in this movie and uh they do not talk about Thanos at all.
1: Well, again, I and the thing I really remember from the last round of trailers was like the end was only the beginning. I'm like, "Oh no, sweetie. The end was the end. Endgame <laughs> was the end, whether you wanted it to be or not. It's yeah. the end and like and like for like you know, trying to play up is that like you know she, she is like a Xano's henchman or she could be a Xano's level threat herself is really funny because like at the at the end of the movie, she blows up real good. and like not in the comic book way where you can survive some pretty heavy things and there's like a stinger shot at the end of her charred hand coming out of wreckage or something, but like blows up in the yeah, we're never seeing this character again.
0: Yeah. Oh wow, she died. Yeah. yeah. oh no <laughs> was that from uh, Game, Game Night, Night. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and, and again speaking of Game Night and, and how funny Rachel McAdams is in that we're back to how the Marvel Cinematic Universe increasingly wastes actresses because all the Doctor Strange movies could think to do with Rachel McAdams is oh you're Doctor Worried Girlfriend
0: yeah. that's it they brought Doctor Worried Girlfriend back for the sequel too right
1: yeah, yeah. There was
0: no need to keep her worrying. No. But, you know, this is this is what also bothers me about the Marvel's movies is that they tie up great actors. Like, yeah. You know, like I know that the payday is pretty irresistible. But I I think we're coming out of that now. I think we're now seeing actors who instead of making an announcement saying that they're in a Marvel movie, they make an announcement to clarify that they are not in a Marvel movie.
1: Yeah, Jack Quaid <laughs> jumping on his socials to make it abundantly clear that he was not going to be spending a decade in a warehouse in Atlanta yelling flame on as the human torch yeah. really felt like a sea change.
0: <laughs> you read about the, the guy who's the star of The Bear having yes. an audition. And, and he basically said, why should I do your movie? And they were like, fuck you to him. They thought that he had a real attitude. But it's like, that's my kind of actor.
1: Yeah, well, again, and I feel really bad for actors like Elizabeth Olson, who are getting more and more candid in interviews and the, you know, sign up in haste, regret at leisure for the, yeah, it, you know, if you're going to do these, make sure your contract, you only opt in for one, that mm-hmm. you don't get stuck doing these for like 10 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking of candor, I also want to say that this movie's a mess, but I actually don't blame the director.
1: Oh, no. I mean, this was so obviously something that's taken away from a director and just absolutely cobbled together with the Cuisinart and Post by, mm-hmm. like, you know, a team of producers and, and, and whatever.
0: She took full advantage of the fact that the actor strike was on and that the cast couldn't really talk about it. That gave her more of a platform to talk. And mm-hmm. I read this interview with her in variety where I was like, damn, that's a really candid and understandable explanation for things. Cause people were mad. She, she split to go work on a, on a movie called Hedda based on Hedda Gabler by Ibsen starring yeah. Tessa Thompson, who makes a cameo that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, So she's like, I've got a career to worry about. I've been waiting for this movie is two years of my life. But she said, the Marvels is a Kevin Feige production. It's his movie. So I think you live in that reality. I tried to go in with the knowledge that some of you is going to take a back seat. And I think that's entirely sensible.
1: Yeah, well, again, and particularly also, and we're back to, like, you know, people who ride or die for Disney's, you know, incredibly shallow commitment to diversity and equity, is that, like, she is also clearly, from how Kevin Feig and others are talking, being set up as the fall guy for how badly this Mm -hmm. is doing. So, like, I don't blame her a bit for preemptively striking. And, like, because, again, never love something that's never going to love you back. So she is smart (laughs) enough to know that Disney is never her back so she she is basically you know
0: I wash my hands of this and why shouldn't she And but she didn't do it in an insulting way they might have been oh. insulted by the fact that she didn't do the team player stuff but she didn't say this movie sucks. Don't blame me. She just said, I'm not in charge. Uh, You know, I directed it. I did the best I could. I have other things to do. The movie's been done for a long time. There's nothing else to do for it. I'm out of here. And I had a sort of a a head on her shoulders. I think about this. And uh, you know, uh, people were saying, Oh, she doesn't have enough experience to do a Marvel's movie. It's like, she's 32. She's, I think she just turned 33 and she, in 2021, where nearly no movies made money or made their money back, she did with her Candyman movie. It, yeah, it, Candyman. it, it made something like seventy-five off twenty-five million-dollar budget. That's and successful.
1: I, yeah, and again, I think it's very worth interjecting here that like the perniciousness of Disney's model seems to be grabbing indie directors who have never done a big, expensive, effects-heavy tentpole before with the idea that they will be so overwhelmed by this, that they'll let Kevin Feig make all the decisions. So she is certainly not the first to be put through that. But if she is being set up to take the fall for that, that's really telling on suddenly we're acting like these are tour movies when a black woman directed one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, and in fact, uh, I presume that, you know, the, the part that I liked the most, which was the musical planet thing, I think she was probably like, yes, we finally get to do this part, you know, yeah. like, instead of where most of the movie takes place, which is in a giant empty soundstage.
1: Yes. And sometimes a giant empty soundstage looks like a space station, and sometimes it looks like Marvel's ship, and then sometimes it looks like maybe the home Kree- homeworld. Who knows? <laughs> yeah.
0: But like, you know, uh, 45 minutes ago, we saw an entire population get wiped out. (laughs) And now the climax of the movie is the the three marbles and the bad guy taking turns fighting each other in a big empty room. Right. And it cost $270 million.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, where's the money going? And it's certainly not going to the women in the cast.
0: (laughs) While I was watching the movie, I had this thought. Ms. Marvel is a gigantic fan of Carol Danvers and Captain Marvel, but it also felt to me like a girl's crush on another girl.
1: Yeah, there there is very much a reading of that, like, this is uh, Mrs. Marvel's queer awakening. And obviously the film isn't going to do anything with that, but it also kind of wants to play it both ways because Tessa Thompson's cameo, she's, she's reprising Valkyrie from the Thor movies. When she shows up, the way. Uh, Captain Marvel Larson talks about her and, you know, the, the, the fucky eyes, they exchange with each other. <laughs> yeah. It's clearly supposed to be read as like, the, oh, they were at least former lovers, at, yeah. at least. But, but again, it's it's the perniciousness of like, you want a cookie for supposed queer representation, but you also don't want to make it explicit because you need to be able to play these in more conservative markets. It's queer baiting It's, it's what it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Tessa Thompson's dressed like Marlena Dietrich in that yeah, exactly. scene, you know? Yeah, she, so he, Ms. Marvel... Is uh, just a gigantic crush on Carol Danvers that sort of borders on uh, you know romantic. And right. the part that I thought was cruel was that Ms Marvel is clearly in love with Captain Marvel, and then she finds out that Captain Marvel's married <laughs> and therefore straight.
1: Well, again, we're back to the weirdness of the film always wanting to have it both ways. Of like, you know captain marvel insisting that it was just a marriage of convenience
0: right and, As, and, and oh, like, that's to hold out another little uh, key to jangle in front of the queer audience right yeah exact, oh, exactly well she she's married but you know there's they never that, see each other it's they never fine. see each other and he doesn't love her the way that yeah. other you know like the,
1: the tessa thompson clearly loves. right
0: but they also they want to hint at all that stuff for the uh fan servicing but they never want to make it explicit Poor Ms. Marvel, she's like getting dumped. That was sort of how it felt to me. Yeah, I guess.
1: And we're back to like, again, these kind of movies that like are are so stripped down emotionally that you have to like project meaning into them. It was sort of like to me, it was like Larson was so not trying that I gave up kind of really watching or paying attention to her. She was just sort of like grimly, you know, frog marching her way through this and hitting her her mark so that, that like. It's it, it sort of like it, it didn't feel like Velani was getting crushed by anything because Velani's um, energy level never waned. The, the one I really, again, felt sorry for was Paris, who the Monica Rambeau just like, and I'm here too. Yeah.
0: Don't forget me. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I was joking uh, on Twitter a couple days ago that I was doing a show about the MCU, which is Michelle Yeoh, <laughs> <laughs> Maggie Chung, and Anita Mui. Uh, They're my MCU. Um, The Heroic Trio is one of my favorite superhero movies. Let's talk about the Heroic Trio. It's a highly enjoyable female superhero movie. It's 30 years old, but it has exactly what (laughs) the Marvels doesn't have
1: yeah I mean it just has this insane energy and it also is short but it's not because like you know it was shaped down to the bone it's just that like it hits the ground running and does not stop until the end credits and it's like it's clearly shot on sound stages and sometimes you can see wires and flashbangs going off and you truly do not care because the leads are fantastic not only are they on clearly on the set at the same time with each other it's like they have chemistry because that's the that's the other fatal thing in the Marvels is that the central trio never comes together as any kind of an ensemble. And boy, do they ever in the heroic trio.
0: What I love about it is that it is a pastiche of all the stuff that we love about comic book movies. And it was directed by the great Johnny To, who would assert himself later as one of the great Hong Kong directors. But this was one of his earlier films. And um, it has comic book movie vibes that are also borrowed from other American movies like this movie was made in the aftermath of Tim Burton's Batman and Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy I think
1: oh yeah because and I mean like you know like the, the, there's a hospital set in the film that looks like the express yourself video is about to start yes. and it's just like these eye-popping sets and lighting and angles and, every, and everything again it's like watching the heroic trio and then watching the marvels it's like outside of like the musical planet se- sequence you just see how like visually and imaginatively impoverished these these Marvel films are and increasingly are.
0: This is a movie that looks like it cost two million dollars <laughs> but that's fine
1: yeah well I mean like you know you 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 start out with like you know Anita M- Mue with the, like this fetching silver mask and this kick ass cape and then when we see Michelle Yeoh she has like a re- leotard in this fabulous red patchwork coat and then like Maggie Chung who is like the world's sexiest chaos Muppet who like literally rolls up on her bike doing a jump like Miss Piggy crashing through the window at the climax of uh, the Great Muppet Caper and like she's sporting like this leather uh, mini skirt and this, this leather biker jacket and it's like again it's like I, I can't get over how embarrassed modern superhero films are to have the costumes look costumey
0: that scene where Maggie Chung makes that spectacular entrance on the motorcycle and then throws a dynamite stick into a barrel yes. and it blasts her off and she's whistling that's Bugs Bunny shit
1: yeah, it's like well, again, it's it's sort of like you know what, what if what if Bugs Bunny was you know, I'm I'm so going to get set to horny tail by the end of this episode flag that ticket. Yeah. yeah, like basically you know Maggie Chung is the incredibly attractive live action Bugs Bunny in this film which is like yeah. you know really appealing and sort of again. plays off the other two women well because like Michelle Yeoh is the more like, and again, Michelle Yeoh and Anita Mui underline why Larson didn't have to be as bad in these films as she she is because like both of them are playing more serious characters and In Yeoh in particular has a really heavy tragic backstory, but they still are able to sell Warmth and moments of humor, and even and even when they're more graver, it's like well, they're also selling that gravity that like oh, oh you know okay this 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 matters versus you know barely resentful. I'm just here so I won't get fined. Of Larson,
0: Anita Mui has that incredible physical comedy scene where she's kung fu fighting against the Invisible Woman. Right. You know we see like footprints of the Invisible Woman, but Anita Mui is fighting the air but it actually looks like she's in mortal combat with
1: yeah because like in fighting invisible foes is both like the you know the low budget filmmaker's best friend but also such a proving ground because if if you're not doing it well it looks like yeah you're just shadow boxing nothing but yeah it, it truly looks like she's fighting someone else
0: yeah and and her character's name is wonder woman yeah, uh, not that one. <laughs> but uh, I'll take Anita Mui as Wonder Woman over Gal Gadot seven days of the week.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. This is someone who had the misfortune to sit through Wonder Woman 1984. Oh, yeah. Did you see that in the theater? Not in, not in the theater. And, like, it was funny is that, like, The word of mouth was so bad, I actually like waited a year or two on it. Yeah, so I put it on one day as my you know, you know, cooking dinner to movie, and I was still stunned by like something I had walked in with, like, well, this is going to be bad, of like, oh wow, that bad, okay.
0: (laughs) And Michelle Yeoh, uh, she seems to be the least interested in being in this movie, like, she's. Her character is more depressed and not as happy as the others. I was trying to figure out whether Michelle Yeoh was happy to be here, (laughs) having watched the Marvels and being very sensitive about the checked out performers in the movie. Like, Michelle Yeoh is good in this film, but she's not, she doesn't have as much to do to me as the other two.
1: Yeah, but at the, but at the same time, there isn't, like, she's enough of a professional and she's a better performer that, like, she's able to sell that, well, someone has to be the straight man in, the, in this trio and someone has to, you know, look grim and serious versus, like, you know, Velani just bouncing off Larson's absolute refusal to, like, engage with this movie and act like she is remotely okay with
0: being here in the first place. mm mm-hmm. You can tell that it was very low budget, but you can also tell that they milked it for all it was worth. They spent right. a lot of energy on costumes. The women look fantastic all the time in this film. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> well, again, it's like the, the word I, I said earlier, I was going to use a lot, you know, tactile. Like, the, you know, the heroic trio is incredibly tactile with like Klieg lights and fog machines and like the the various shades of red in Michelle Yeoh's patchwork coat. And like, you know, everything in this film you can reach in touch. And like the increasingly lack of energy any physical objects in any Marvel product is part
0: of what makes them so empty and antiseptic. Let's also mention that Michelle Yeoh has this fantastic comedy action sequence where she is, uh, they rip off Terminator 2 at the end, the evil master in the movie. Uh, This giant ball of flame (laughs) lands onto the soundstage. and, And then a crudely animated skeleton comes out and Yes, it looks terrible. No, it's amazing though, is how I feel about it. It's like if it didn't look terrible, then this movie wouldn't be as special as it is.
1: Yeah, and I'm and I mean it's like one of those things that's like <laughs> I you can like I said, like sometimes you can see wires and you truly don't care because like the film's like energy and verve and commitment to entertaining you works and like and again, it's one of the, it's one of those things where like the weirdness of like seemingly perfect seamless CGI is ultimately weightless, which ultimately sometimes locks you out of a viewing experience. The way that like being reminded of the physicality of objects creates a world that you can then you can tr- you can lose yourself in.
0: Mm-hmm. But but Michelle Yeoh is 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 she's wrapped up by this uh, walking skeleton Mm -hmm. and it's just Michelle Yeoh wearing a skeleton suit, you know, Yeah, but she makes it look like her body's been taken over and, and that she's being uh, twisted and turned around by this creature that's behind her and trying to murder her. And she punches out (laughs) Anita Mui at one point, you know, it's like, it's so funny though. It actually looks like she's, I mean, it is, it looks like, a skeleton is on top of her as much as it possibly can look but also the fact that she's doing it is part of what makes it funny and and right. effective
1: yeah and and again it's 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 one of those things where like you know n- none of the actresses in the marvels would ever dean to make themselves look so silly but nothing that memorable happens in the marvels either yeah
0: maggie chung is constantly making comedy faces and stuff too
1: yes yes Very sexy comedy. I've got, I gotta, please don't put that in me. (laughs)
0: I'll leave it in if it's charming, Jessica. Unless you really don't want it in.
1: No, this this is gonna just end with me like banging my my head with a mallet like the cartoon wolf in that little red hot riding hood.
0: Yeah. When I did the show with Aaron and Carly on Breathless, we kept saying, oh, no, I hear the keys a-jangling for the horny jail. <laughs> yes. you know, it's, it's like, can't even talk about Valerie Kaprisky without the horny jail yes. keys. Um, one of the things that I found out in my research was that in 1983, during the Miss World beauty pageant, two of the competitors were Maggie Chung and Michelle Yeoh, representing Hong Kong and Malaysia, respectively. And I was like, fuck. So they really, they are so beautiful. And they are also literally beauty queens. Mm -hmm. You can add Anita Mui to that because she was uh, a very, very popular actress and singer. She was known as the Madonna of the East during her heyday. And she did an amazing version of Strut by Sheena Easton in Cantonese that was banned in mainland China for being too sleazy.
1: Yeah, it's it's a a great track.
0: early on in the movie i knew this is the movie for me when anita mui was coming up the stairs with that pink umbrella and all these kids are all on the balcony blowing bubbles, and the bubbles are all floating down oh, in the yes, shot. That's
1: such a beautiful shot. It's so people.
0: beautiful. Yeah. But then, so, but then um, Anita Mui is visiting this fortune teller, and they're on her balcony. Right. And the kids are still blowing their bubbles, and then one of the little kids tumbles off yes. the balcony. And Anita Mui flies through the air to catch the girl, and it's just a fantastic Moment that just comes out of nowhere, and she also catches a kitten that also falls off the balcony. But uh, I would say that this was an arguably a better action scene involving cute kitty cats than the one that was in the Marvels.
1: Yeah, well, again, because like all the stuff with the space kittens, Evgen feels both so producer notes and disconnected from everything that mm-hmm. and again, and again also the CGI on the space kittens isn't really great. Great, I mean the CGI on nothing in the Marvels is really great. No. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of like the, oh, you in a, in a, if Marvel movies were still riding high, these were the highly marketable new characters that all the toys were going to be made, made
0: out of, you know. So in this movie, the space cats are called Flurkins, and Captain Marvel's cat suddenly hacks up a hairball and this huge set of tentacles come out of the cat's mouth. And then it disappears back in the cat's mouth and it's a normal cat again. That was funny. Oh, I didn't expect that. I bet you that some of the reshoots were everybody loved the scene with the kitten. Let's have let's have some more kitten scenes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it was like, oh, it's funny, well we'll just keep doing it until it's not funny.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. When like the the, the finale of like all the space kittens running around the space station and Barbara Streisand's version of memories on the soundtrack. It's like, it's like, it's almost funny. Or I can see how in a good movie, this would be a cute wacky climax to things. But yeah, I was thinking kind of the same thing as you it was like, my God, which via uh, visual effects, people didn't see their family for a month animating this. Yeah.
0: The Marvels, everyone was saying, oh, it's so weird and wild and wacky and unpredictable and zany no, and stuff oh like that. God, it's okay. like, well, it was like um, a zaniest casual Fridays at the office. You yeah, know? <laughs> that was a really good point. It's like it. mandatory fun mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Whereas um, – the heroic trio takes some risks and twists and turns that actually uh, you might not like. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like
1: in, in in Hong Kong films, and on, honestly, in, in basically in films outside North America, it's like, yeah, we'll kill kids. Kids are yeah. absolutely f- fair game, so that's always something for like you know a, a Western North American audience of like of calibrate your expectations accordingly. That like, oh, it's a toddler. The toddler, of course, is going to make it out of this home, not necessarily. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I saw the Heroic Trio at Toronto Cinematheque a few years ago, and it was a double bill with the sequel called Executioners, which is not very good. It's, it had the potential of being this road warrior kind of sequel. It took place in a future sort of dystopia. Oh. But it's it's not nearly as fun as Heroic Trio. And yeah. uh, it kind of felt like, well, we've still got the sets. So let's keep making it. Let's make a sequel just in case this is a hit. Yeah, but well, they kind of phoned it in. Mm-hmm. The audience was enjoying the heroic trio, you know, what's not to enjoy? And then all of a sudden, there was the kidnapped baby that was, uh, there was a fight over the kidnapped baby, and the baby fell down a flight of stairs and impales the back of its head on Mm -hmm. a nail. Yeah. And then, so now all of a sudden, there's a dying baby in the movie, and Anita Mui runs the baby to the hospital, and the doctor comes. Out from the operator room and says, I'm sorry, we did all we could, but the baby's dead <laughs> and the audience was like, like you could tell that they, like it it was like a covenant had been broken in yeah. the audience like like people were mad that they would actually let a baby die in a movie, and what kind of entertainment is this right it was like a cult movie audience would love it, but this was like an art house. Audience who wanted to see, you know, oh, it's a superhero movie with an all female cast, but then they didn't like the dead baby. And then later in the movie, there's um, a baby snatching plot in this movie where some of the babies that have been stolen by the evil master are now like four or five years old. And we see all these babies that are in the underground world that they all live in. And some of the babies are eating what appears to be human flesh.
1: Right, right. And,
0: and Maggie Chung's character says, well, we better kill them because they are it's too late for these kids. They're going to be monsters and we can't have any monsters on the earth. So she throws all this dynamite at them and blows them all up. And right. the audience was like, Jesus Christ. Like the, Now the audience is actually mad at this movie because they're murdering babies and children. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm like, have you not seen any Hong Kong movies? Yeah. <laughs> Hong Kong movies were completely unafraid to step over the line all the time. And the reason why they did it is because it's so obviously a movie.
1: Right. Well, there's a there's a really good movie uh, from 84 called Drunken Tai Chi. It's an early – breakout role for Donnie Yen and like there's a scene where it's like he has a wacky drunken arm wrestling contest at the local tavern and then gets home to find that his family died after being burned alive in their house and like that is exactly the kind of tonal shifts that like Hong Kong and East Asian cinema has and that like I think for like Western viewers can sometimes be a learning curve.
0: Johnny To is kind of like well fuck them kids in this yes. film and, and, and some people might have a problem with that but like he's making a ridiculous superhero movie and all bets are off and no holds are barred. And uh, you know, like, Oh, we need a tragedy. What about a dead baby? Like that's not off limits in Hong Kong.
1: I find uh, these kinds of tonal shifts in like East Asian cinema, much less jarring, not to mention much less offensive than the tonal shifts in like Marvel stuff of LOL. None of this matters after showing Mm -hmm. things like, you know, a, a planet being genocided.
0: Yeah, because they don't get the balance right, Mm -hmm. is why. Because the heroic trio is ridiculous from the beginning. Right. So once you've set the rules that anything can happen in this movie, and it's a pastiche of all this stuff, and it's uh, got melodramatic and campy uh, moments. Like, uh, to me, the, the, the killing of children and babies in this movie is camp. Right. Because this movie on top of its relationship to things like Dick Tracy and Tim Burton's Batman is it also owes a debt to the 60s Batman, which I'm sure was extremely popular in Hong Kong. Right. (laughs) You know, it's supposed to be tasteless is how I sort of look at it. And I'm surprised that they killed children in this movie, but it also uh, I will allow for it.
1: <laughs> yeah it's 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 one of those things that like i i can roll with jarring tonal shifts in like hong kong cinema the way that like in marvel movies it's like to me it well again it's it's probably just like can't believe i'm using this phrase discussing marvel movies but like from my position in the imperial core yeah. watching these movies it's sort of like yeah, but like if you are on the the brunt of this violence, like if you, you are in Gaza, or if you are in any of the places where our fingers reach, you know, it's not just the oh well, let's have a wacky scene on a musical planet now. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah. and for like people who want to say like, well, you're, you know, you're reading way too much to, to Marvel. Are you treating them much more as like, you know, an official arm of US propaganda? I'm like, they are welcome to cut ties with the defense department anytime they want. But until they do, I do think of, I do think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as honestly part of the Imperial project.
0: Variety magazine in their review of the heroic trio called the film a quote, flashy kung fu superhero and adventure full of solid production values. But marred by some disturbingly gratuitous plot elements. (laughs) (laughs) It's like,
1: that's a Johnny Toe movie, baby.
0: (laughs) I think they went too far with the uh, dead babies.
1: Yeah, but going back to to, to the the uh, the thing of like also, I'll give Hong Kong and like East Asian and just again, so many non North American cinema movies it's a credit for you end when the story is over because that's that's the other thing that like speaks to what a troubled production the Marvels is is that. It doesn't have too many extra endings and it doesn't go on for an extra hour after the logical input of the story, not because it's actually learned some things. It's because, well, all that footage got (laughs) cut.
0: Well, think about it on an elemental storytelling level that, you know, the Marvels is a movie about these three women who join forces. And at the end of the movie, one of them leaves and never comes back. (laughs) One of them, who's the official star of the movie, because this is technically a sequel, just leaves the movie too. And then uh, that's it. Uh, Preview of the next Marvel movie with the third character. So, that's kind of an anticlimactic way to wrap up this superhero trio movie. Whereas the heroic trio has the three women in the movie in separate worlds. Like one of them is the good. Crime fighting vigilante. Mm-hmm. One of them is working for the evil master, and one of them is a bounty hunter who sort of basically is a profiteer right. and takes the side that seems to be paying the best. And they all become friends. And as we realize at the very end of the movie, they were friends from childhood too. Yeah. And they've been reunited, and the movie ends with the three of them after having slain all the bad guys and survived this crazy story. They throw their cowl's on and they walk through the night in slow motion, and they get a fucking superhero ending.
1: Yeah, I mean, and 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 that's it. That's and like, yeah, and you—that's actually a point that, like, yeah, why doesn't the Marvels end with the you know what? I think we might make a really good team. You know,
0: you just yeah. have something there kid. Yeah. It ends with like the crane oh, shot of the three of them walking in slow motion with the BC boys playing or something. Or something.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It actually ends with the world. Well, Monica Rambeau is being attended to by the beast in another universe. And like Kamala and her family have been moved to a nice farm upstate. And, <laughs> and Carol
0: Danvers like, died on her way back. Yeah, the yeah, old planet.
1: Exactly. And pretty <laughs> <Larson> finally chewed <laughs> through her restraints
0: as we sort of Wrap up our discussion. We should also say that, you know, the three women in this movie, they're eternal as the heroic trio, as far as I'm concerned. But Anita Mui uh, tragically passed away at only age 40 of cancer. Uh, there was a recent biopic about her that was released in China, uh-huh. which is interesting because she was critical of China in her Hong Kong period. But I guess all is mostly forgiven now because she's been gone for so long. Right. Maggie Chung has retired from acting. She makes the occasional appearances at DJ, though. I uh, would love to see Maggie Chung DJ night. Yeah, I was so, same here. <laughs> <laughs> and and Michelle Yeoh is the reigning Best Actress Oscar winner. I don't know what your feelings are about Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, but I'm I, I'm all in favor of a Lifetime Achievement Award for Michelle Yeoh.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad she's like just collecting good paydays and like you know, okay enough English, work. But one, the reason I one of the, the the reason that sneering at subtitles is such a big red flag for me is that like I was getting increasingly Jokerified by people acting like michelle Yeoh is like it finally it's really nice to see you know this older woman like break out and you know the against hollywood ageism and it's like you know she is literally an international star and has been for decades and if you were actually fucking willing to watch movies with subtitles you would know that (laughs) well
0: like when when she won the oscar you you so those clickbaity pieces like check out these older michelle Yeoh films like Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, yeah. Or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's like, what about fucking Police Story Three?
1: Right, right. <laughs> you know. Wing Chong, yeah.
0: Also, this rewatch of the heroic trio has made me want to watch a bunch of Maggie Chung movies again. Mm-hmm. Like Green Snake, have you seen? No, I should that's
1: been that's on the to
0: see list. It's a wonderful color movie. Yeah. You should see it just for that reason alone. And it's also pretty sleazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Maggie Chung, uh, nothing to prove, as far as I'm concerned. I love her, and uh, this was like, if you have a crush on Maggie Chung, this movie will not help you. <laughs> like you will have a worse crush on her after this.
1: <laughs> on the advice of my attorneys, I am no longer affirming what you say, about Maggie Chung, so I do not get sent to horny jail. For life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Was there anything else that you wanted to say about either of the films before we wind it down?
1: Just that it's interesting that like there is finally a cultural era trend, juggernaut, that like I am enough of an adult to have experience from its beginning to its end. Like, you know, old enough to understand what it was meaning when the Raimi Spider-Man movie showed that these things could actually be good to when, like, Dark Knight cracked a billion dollars and it showed the money that could be in these movies to when, you know, Iron Man got the whole thing rolling. And, like, what was funny about Iron Man is I remember you know, they hadn't trained audiences to stay through the credits yet. So I remember seeing all the blurry cell phone footage of the the people who did for whatever reason, excitedly realizing they were going to be, they were, they were setting up an Avengers movie.
0: Well, you know, they did it to themselves. Marvel, like they've trained their audience that, you know, sometimes you might want to see this movie in a theater, but don't worry. It's going to be on Disney plus in about two months. Yeah. And so, you know, it's expensive to go to the movies. So people look at uh, the Marvels, they read the reviews, they don't hear any, anybody's saying you better see it. And then they're like, Oh, I'll just watch it on streaming. So now if the movie's not a gigantic hit out of the gate, it's doomed.
1: Yeah. I'm, and again, it's one of those things that like, you know, I'm not saying you can't make these movies and still keep the idea of them being like all interconnected, but you're going to have to make them for a
0: lot less money. But they've already started with Echo, which is being uh it's the Marvel Spotlight series. And what Marvel Spotlight means is you don't have to have watched X and Y to be able to understand Z.
1: I believe so. And also, again, it speaks to just how shallow Disney's commitment to diversity and inclusion is, is that... Well what's the first title they feel comfortable saying oh this doesn't matter and you don't have to watch anything beforehand oh it's the one with the disabled indige- indigenous lead and it's <laughs> and again also you you create some self-fulfilling prophecies because it's like yeah okay you don't have to do homework to watch the series but it's like well this is never going to matter and she's certainly never showing up in a film so whatever yeah.
0: They should give it to some people who are like, you know, what? Instead of spending two hundred and seventy million dollars on every single Marvel movie, why don't we try spending a hundred million dollars? Like Oppenheimer only cost a hundred million dollars. Yeah, or even like, or even like to, for comic book stuff, like. Joker,
1: I think, only cost like fifty million. I think it might have cost Mm -hmm. under fifty million. But the the point being is that like not only was that a sane amount to spend on such a weird hook, it meant that like when it became like a breakout hit, oh boy, did you ever make your money back?
0: Yeah, Uh, when you saw Joker, you didn't think they could possibly make a sequel, but of course they are because it made so much money.
1: Yeah, the th- the thing that just utterly amazes me is that like I walked out of Joker going like oh that was you know much ado about nothing and that like you know for everyone worried it was going to become like a right wing flashpoint you know it- its m- its message ultimately is society huh but like you know, if you ask me, but you're going to go see this, this, the sequel next year. Yeah. (laughs) Because again, Lady Gaga as Harley Quinn in a musical set at Arkham Asylum is like the exact series of Mad Libs that believe it or not, they actually fucking did to get me to go see the sequel. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like a Joker movie. That's like Martin Scorsese's taxi driver or Martin Scorsese's the king of comedy. It's like, yeah. Okay. That's pretty predictable. But then, a Joker sequel that's kind of like Martin Scorsese's New York, New yep. York. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <I'm> like yes,
1: <laughs> yeah. Like w- w- when, like when, like Joker made so much money, <laughs> it became obvious a sequel was going to happen, and everybody was like saying, like, well, w- what Scorsese movie is he going to rip off for the sequel? Like I was saying, it's like, oh, he's going to rip off Casino, and then Harley Quinn will be doing Sharon Stone's arc in Casinos. Yeah, I did. I did not see New York, New York coming. <laughs>
0: Well, Jessica, you have successfully escaped Twitter. You are now on Blue Sky doing your thing, and you're like a reason alone to just take your act over to Blue Sky. Uh, you've been using it the the way that it should be used, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I have basically leaned into the lack of like, easy to follow threading on Blue Sky to basically what I was doing on YouTube of like curating interesting things I find on YouTube. That's now on Blue Sky under J.M. Ritchie.
0: Well, Jessica, thank you so much for uh, indulging me and uh, agreeing to watch the Marvels. And <laughs> and uh, and and like you, I ex- I expected worse. So yes, even though I didn't like it very much, I didn't have the same problems that everyone else had with it.
1: Right? You know, it wasn't punishingly terrible. Raves, uh, junk filter podcast. <laughs> 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 the cat
0: steals the show. <laughs>
1: Right again. I I do not understand writing or dying for a corporation that would not piss on you if you were on fire. Yeah,
0: they'd be sorry to hear that you're you're no longer a Disney Plus subscriber. Yes, that's basically it. <laughs> well, Jessica Ritchie, thank you so much for joining me. Please come back anytime. Oh, thanks. It's always great to be here. Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon and patrons get access to bonus episodes every month. If you'd like to support this podcast directly, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. Coming soon to the podcast, the writer Jacob Backrack is coming back to the program. We're doing a show on Ridley Scott's Napoleon. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken.